0: And all of a sudden, when that episode aired, all these people who said no started calling and saying, okay, we're ready to talk. And it really changed the direction of the whole podcast. And that experience, you know, that experience revealed to me that what was hindering those people from telling their story was they wanted to make sure that we told what mattered about the church. Because the... the the emotion around what was good about the church remains incredibly powerful, even to the people who were hurt the most.
1: Welcome to the Acton Line podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill is one of the most popular Christian podcasts in the past year. It chronicles how Mars Hill Church in Seattle went from one of the most influential multi-site evangelical churches in the United States to an abuse and scandal-ridden nightmare, finally having to shut its doors for good in 2014, following the resignation of its charismatic founder, Mark Driscoll. Eric Cohn, Acton's Director of Marketing and Communications, sits down with Mike Cosper, producer, writer, and host of the podcast, to discuss the lessons from the stories Cosper tells in the rise and fall of Mars Hill, as well as the problems associated with celebrity pastors and church institutions. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org podcast. If you like this program, you could help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.
2: Mike Cosper, welcome to Act in Line.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on.
2: So this is going to be a very meta podcast with yeah. two podcast hosts on a podcast talking about a podcast. Um, so you hosted last year the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and you're still putting episodes of that out what drew you to want to tell that story and, and give our audience the basis of sure. that story?
0: Yeah, so the basis of the story, um, it's about a church that was planted in 1996 in Seattle called Mars Hill, um, planted by a guy named Mark Driscoll, 26-year-old, very talented preacher, communicator. Um, by, you know, by 2000, let's see, by, by 2001, they had over 1,000 people. Um, at the end uh, of the story in 2000. Uh, 2013 was probably their peak. They had around 13, 14,000 people, and they were in you know six locations, five states. Um, uh, no, sorry, 15 locations, five states. It's early in the morning. Um, and then you know, between sort of fall 2013 and fall 2014, there was this implosion, and um, December 31st, uh, the church was gone. Um, and so what was interesting to me about the story was – I had been part of you know church planting, been part of kind of the same young restless reformed movement, and what what I saw at Mars Hill um, I had friends in the church was repeating in all kinds of churches around the country. Um, these young, very gifted leaders, communicators, particularly um, were just imploding right and left. Uh, it happened at my own church uh, it was a really you know painful, toxic kind of experience there. So, my thought was, "Let's try to understand why this phenomenon's happening. Let's tell this story in a way that's intimate and then can hopefully um, you know can hopefully shed some light on the broader phenomenon,
2: as Edmund Burke wrote that example is the school of mankind, and he shall learn it no other <laughs> and yet, you know, as I think about that in numerous examples. It doesn't seem that we learn at them. Right. Um, you see that pattern, as you said, of these things happening over and over again. I'd been in Chicago prior to moving to Grand Rapids, and you saw it at Harvest Bible Chapel. You saw it at Willow Creek. You saw it, you know, again numerous places that you've referenced around the country. Um, and the pattern, like you said, seems to be similar. Why, why right. does the exact same thing seem to be playing out in a you know, if history doesn't repeat
0: itself, it right. seems to keep rhyming way, right? Yeah, I, I think the moment we're in is a reckoning with some transformations that happened in the church in, starting in the you know starting maybe in the late '70s, early 1980s, where it's it's almost as though, you know the 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 evangelical world discovered that the tools of mass communication, um could you know could empower them in a similar way that it empowered. You know, the, in a similar way that it transformed, transformed politics, you know, a few decades before. Um, the forerunner of this, of course, is, was Robert Shuler and the Crystal Cathedral and, and everything that happened there. And, you know, what's remarkable is uh, Orange County was this hub for movements, whether it was his church or Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel or, you know, you know a few years later, uh, uh, you have Rick Warren, Saddleback Church. And you know, not every not every church that sort of took that example ended up being this toxic stew, of course. Um, uh, and you know, I, I think you you see some things in Rick Warren's story that are that are helpful to that end. But um, but what what those what that kind of mass media model and what that kind of entrepreneurial leadership model does is it it shifts the it shifts the job job description of the pastor in such a way that the pastoral requirements of the New Testament aren't necessary to do that job. What's necessary to do that job is to have the the entrepreneurial skills of a media personality, of a, you know, Heibel's really, really beat this drum that he was like I left the family business. I was going to be a businessman. Businessman. I mean, the number of times he talks about kind of his business life is is interesting. It's fascinating. Um, and you don't hear him beating the drum of like, man, I was just compelled by First and Second Timothy and Titus, you know, to be who I am. Um, and so anyway, so I. It's almost as though we have fetishized a certain kind of leadership that is, uh, that is. A necessary part of culture, but needs to be accountable in an entirely different way than the work of a pastor and the work of a church.
2: Fetishized a type of leadership, I think, also, as and here's the first time I imagine we'll invoke Yuval Levin, <laughs> uh, is performance as well, right? right. It, it is treating it as – and, you know, there's, uh, there is an element of performance in all preaching, right? right. You know, it, there is an element of the ability – to get up there and deliver a sermon, to deliver a homily in a way that is interesting and compelling. As as a Catholic, I've been to a lot of different parishes, and I've heard priests who are very good at doing that, and I've heard ones that are not good at all in doing that. And yes, you'd prefer to listen to the ones who are very good at doing it. Um, But it, it seems to in the way that Levin describes in his work on institutions, is that it has transformed the institution from what it is supposed to be, which is something that molds character of the people who are involved in it, that everybody's working towards an end of accomplishing something and they are bettered for the process. And it turns it into a platform on which people can stand and perform. And in the story that you tell in Mars Hill, You don't just go through Mark Driscoll as being one that's standing and performing. You have other people who pop up in that story who, in their own individual ways, seem to be embracing that performance part of it. That it all—and I'm trying not to sound too cynical here—it all kind of becomes an act. And you— you play a character in a way that you find yourself lost in the character and you you lose yourself in the process to being the person that you're now expected to be in public.
0: Yeah. And, and one of the things that's, that's particularly interesting about Driscoll is he had, he had some self-awareness about this and he had in particular self-awareness about the fact that if people got too close to him, it was dangerous and so when he was speaking at, you know, Acts Twenty Nine events, the Church Planting Network they were a part of, or um, speaking to, you know, they had, you know, a few hundred staff members on the church by the end. And when he would talk to them, he would basically say, hey, because you're on church, people want to get close to you. And if you let people close to you, they will hurt you. They will betray you. They will, you know, this, that, and the other with you. So you just have to realize that you really can't have any friends that are that are here as part of the community. You need friends that have some distance and you need a very close circle in terms of your family and and whatnot. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's – and it's interesting as well to listen to some of the, the people who are part of the staff of Mars Hill who had a different kind of self-awareness about it. Um, I think Chad Gardner's story is is especially interesting. He was a, a young, talented worship leader who, you know, he was on on the platform leading worship in front of thousands of people when he was like 22, 23 years old. And he had this awareness of, I keep getting promoted here." and i don't know anything <laughs> you know he's, he he tells this great story on on an episode where we interviewed him he says he says you know i, I we did this um we did this Good Friday service, and you know, I wanted to just—you know—Good Friday was like a big deal in Mars Hill because it was this very dark, weighty service that they would do. He said, "I just wanted to come in and blow the doors off," you know, as a musician. And so I threw everything I had at this thing, and and it went really well. And afterwards, Driscoll called me into his office, and he was like, "Man, that was great." You know, here's my vision for you. I want you to be a pastor. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And he says, "You know," he, Chad was like, "I." I I didn't want to do any of that. He's <laughs> like I'm, I'm a musician. Like I'm i do what I want to do and I'm not qualified for any of this stuff he's talking about. And so yeah, so so and I think that's endemic of a deeper problem in evangelical churches, which is they – because they function like corp, corporations, it's like you're good at this, so now we have to move you up to management and now we have to move you up to this. And and it's the same problem you see in like sales in, in companies where it's like you're good at sales. Well, because you've succeeded, now we have to promote you and we put you in management and it turns out that people who are good at sales are often bad at management and it, it's damaging. And so I think we have to find ways in the church to value people's gifts in the places they are. Um, because I think that could actually protect us from some of this weird uh, you know every organization has a jig of some sort that's leading people to you know forming people in certain ways. and I think the jigs in these kinds of churches are not forming character, they're forming the skills of management and entrepreneurship.
2: You mentioned the word qualifications in there, and uh, as I mentioned, you're still Releasing bonus episodes of the rise and fall of Mars Hill and, and the most recent one uh, There's a passage a, a clip in there from Mark Driscoll <laughs> Speaking at a seminary where he is saying to this audience that I didn't go to seminary I didn't go to Bible college. I haven't been a head pastor at a church. I haven't been an associate pastor at a church that um, more or less saying I don't have any qualifications <laughs> for this and What's fascinating about it is he's saying it in a way that is, you know, if you were to read it off of paper, right, you would think that it is somebody confessing that, you know, uh, uh, imposter syndrome. And yet it is his resume here that, you know, I am I have not been formally trained in any of this. That is why I decided it's I'm the right person to go plant a church. What is this attraction that we have to anti-qualification um, and to outsiderism The people who have not been, you know, setting aside the problems, of course, that we have with institutions and formation, the ones there is still formation that is going on at a number of institutions around the country. They're not they're not all malfunctioning. Right. But there seems to be a trend of rejecting that. In favor of people who say I'm the opposite of it. I didn't come from it at all. I have none of those credentials. I have none of those qualifications, and that's why you should follow me.
0: Right. Yeah, maybe we should have opened the podcast, and encouraged people to have a drinking game here, where like every time we say you've all Levine's name, we have a drink.
2: Our, our roundtable podcast. Uh, <laughs> if that hasn't happened at this point, I'm surprised. Yeah, at I, least we need bingo cards. I told
0: somebody know? before I came up here, I was like, if I was going to add one book to the Bible, it might be a time to build. Um, no, I, I – um, you know, he talk, He talks about this as well, like this, this love of Mavericks, this love of the outsider and, you know, we have the, – there's this illusory sense that because they're not in an institution um, that's sort of mediating who they are and what the role that they play is, we have this more direct access to – not just to them but to the truth, you know, to the real stuff, to what it's really supposed to be about and – you know whether it's whether it's politicians or uh, really so much in the post you know post social media age that that direct access thing is super appealing. I think it's fascinating in terms of um, the lives of movie stars uh, and how that it looks so different today than it did even 30, 30 years ago because access to like access to, to movie stars. Um, 30, 35 years ago was very, very – it was very narrow bandwidth. Um, a lot of them who were big stars didn't want anything to do with the press and they wanted to have a private, private and kind and of studios
2: life. had people
0: whose job was to keep them out of the press. Exactly, especially if they knew they were crazy, right, <laughs> which a lot of actors are. Um, and so when, when social media comes along and you have this direct access, there's no filtering the crazy stuff people say and the, the sort of the trouble that comes out of it. Um, or, or or, even if it's not crazy, even if it's just controversial and the studio recognizes if this gets out, you know, uh, if, if you say these things in public, it's just going to create the, the wrong kind of trouble, the wrong kind of turmoil. Um, for one, like I don't think Gina Carano would have gotten canceled from uh, The Mandalorian if she hadn't been on social media. I think if – if she had just been a person and and kind of lived her life in hollywood and and had managers and things that sort of mediated all of that there would have been people that were like hey that's fine that you think these things about vaccines and whatever and trump and whatever but let's just not make that the thing people know about you looks like you're acting be that in,
2: in in extreme circumstances too i i worry about this in the way that we are quashing eccentricity and, yeah. and in some cases, yeah, it's like, you know, mm. the, it, there are people who have crazy beliefs and some of them are fairly repugnant and it'd just be better if we didn't know about it. You right. know, they, <laughs> it, people have all kinds of crazy ideas and the problem with social media is it allows you to express oh. every idea that you have the moment that you have it in front of a huge audience of people or potentially a huge audience of people. But there's also, you know, it, i, I if, I think I'm correct on this story, that um, Alexander Graham Bell in wanting to invent the telephone, a primary motivation was he wanted to commune with the dead. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so cool. people have these motivations that seem crazy to us for wanting to do certain things, but they y- can sometimes yield incredible results. Um, I think you can see this in examples too of a lot of tech inventors that you know, in all likelihood, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, were somewhere on the autism spectrum. But it also... Drove them in ways to uh, to do things and to create things, um, and we have this now a comfortability with eccentricity that I th- I think the example of Gina Carano is is a very interesting one, and I agree entirely with that. I worry on the other side of it too that in in reaction to what we see as a problem there that we're trying to eliminate all forms of eccentricity within society, I think that it makes the world, a less interesting place. And you wonder about the, I wonder about the unseen part of that. Like what is not going to happen in the future? What things are not going to be created? What is not going to be invented? Where will we not go? Because people who for crazy reasons may want to do something that's incredibly useful to people. Yeah. They're not going to do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's this idea that, um, uh, Hannah Arendt talks about in her book The, the, the Human Condition um, where she talks about – she calls it the rise of the social. And, and what she – there's a lot of like debate about what exactly she means because she's a bit sort of uh, obtuse about the whole thing because it, it kind of becomes everything in her book. But one of the things that she is pretty clear about is the idea of the rise of the social is that what was private, um, there was this – there was this – strong division, not totally concrete, but a division between the private and the public realms. And what happens in a world of mass media, the flattening of uh, of sort of class divisions or the the porousness of class divisions and all the rest of it, is that much that used to be in the private realm begins to sort of press into the public realm, but not necessarily in a way that sort of transforms the public, more in in, in a way that sort of transforms, you know, uh, what what would have been private? These kinds of things, these kinds of eccentricities, and they become judged in a way that it that looks wildly different than it would have, you know, in the past. So what you end up with is you end up with this, you know, society in which what's what's allowable in public and the the people who are allowed to have those platforms in public um, have to be the people that we would also be comfortable at our dinner table with. And if somebody is saying something that would bother us if they were sitting in our house and they said at the dinner table or whatever, that, that's what drives the canceling. That's what drives people out is because we're not comfortable with the idea that we share uh, a culture and we share a community. We share a country with people who don't think exactly the way we do. And that becomes – this. Co- so there's this competition for, for that society place, that social that social space. Um, and it comes from the right and the left. I mean, the, the right has their way of sort of canceling or you know boycotting or whatever. Um, and but I do think it's fascinating. And again, like I mean, the fact that she used the word "the social" is really interesting, given sort of social media world and how how critical a role it plays in that right now.
2: Let's come back to the anti-qualification stuff. One of the things that stuck out in what you said was um, in the rise of this internet age, right? So I'm wondering how much having All the information in the world at your fingertips has produced this attitude that uh, results in the death of expertise. Because I can go online and I can. We know that all the knowledge in the history of the world is available on the internet, so I can go access it directly. I don't need to go through somebody else who has spent time focused on a specific subject. Um, And as a result, we disregard expertise where it exists because you know why go through an intermediate intermediary when you can access it yourself um and then i think the inverse problem that comes from that as well is a lot of those experts as well stray out of their lane and claim expertise because i'm an expert in a i'm now an expert in b through z um and we lose you know this is part of the losing of trust within society is that you know well this person who's supposed to be an expert on this is wrong about something else. So I shouldn't listen to them any, on anything. And now I'm just going to look inward for all the answers.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I'd, so my thoughts go in a lot of directions on this. A lot of it in terms of, I think, the, the attraction to leaders and voices who, who lack expertise and kind of beat that drum. I think a lot of it has – I think a lot of it is, is just deeply unconscious it's it's there's an instinct thing, and there's um, there's simply the fact that people are are able to to perform a role, um, and and the the performance itself is um, the performance itself is what's attractive. Um, they like them because they're you know they're ultimately their skill, the expertise that they're bringing to the table is their ability to entertain. You know it's bread and circuses. I think Joe Rogan's a really interesting example of this. I mean Rogan's closest listeners and most serious followers take his word on everything from like aliens to ayahuasca to you know Bernie Sanders you know what I mean mm-hmm. I mean it's just I, I remember there was this very in like brief but sort of intense campaign that like Rogan should um, uh, Rogan should should moderate a presidential debate. Um, <laughs> which which I just found funny because it's like, man, that's just that's way beyond his remit. He's a stand up comedian, and he's he's interesting on his show, and his show is interesting because he's a very smart, very curious guy who has you know interesting questions and and all of that and if i I think if you take him at that level um there's there's a lot about the show that's interesting. But if you take him as the expert who has expert opinions on all of these things, which is which is exactly this sort of danger. Um, then, yeah. Then it. Then it. Then it gets weird. And because of that, uh, I again because of that, I think it. It is this. It reveals that phenomenon where the celebrity itself becomes the uh, like the success in gathering numbers and the the entertainment value uh, as well. That becomes its own kind of authority, and we defer to it.
2: Let's come back to Mars Hill, as you talked about. Similar patterns have played out at other churches around the country, what are the warning signs that people should be attuned to? You know, We have an incredible ability as humans um, to deny what's right in front of our eyes because we don't want to see it. Uh, what are the warning signs that people who are involved in churches should be looking for that this really is a toxic environment, that despite, you know, I can, you know, I can think and find the things and I'm like, well, no, this is going really well, or this is going really well. But the overall picture is the one that leads to the kind of collapse like you saw with Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill.
0: Yeah. Gosh. I mean, it's hard to to know where to start. One of the funny things about the Mars Hill story was that early on in the life of the church, um, well, let me back up. So I think one of the reasons Mars Hill collapsed um, is is because of the way they set up expectations about what kind of church they are. I think there's a lot of churches that operate the way Mars Hill operates with the – or operated with this very authoritarian leadership at the very center. Um, And I think it – like I think they sustain themselves and they don't collapse because they never set expectations that it would be any other way. Um, The pastor is sort of the apostle prophet, right? And um, we were going to always defer to him from the very beginning. Part of what made Mars collapse is that for the, the majority of its history, the the drum that they beat was we're, we're a church with elders. We're a church with accountability. And Mark said things. He said things like, I will never have a website with my name on it. Um, and then he launches PastorMark.TV. Um, he said things like, I will never have a church website with my face on it. And then very quickly it had his face on it, you know. Um, and so I think you have to watch the culture shifts and if the culture's shift so that they're oriented around a single personality that's a significant a significant problem. I think the second thing is when a church begins to create structures that manage relationships, I think that's a that's a dangerous thing too. So so one of the things you see in some of these unhealthy churches is that the, they begin to sort of control Hey, who's who are your friends, right? So you have these like community groups or small groups or what, whatever it is. And a lot of times like in, I think in healthy churches, those things form and then people learn how to have meaningful spiritual friendships and they kind of fall out of the structure. Um, there's this weird thing where churches – say like, no, you can't do that. You have to be part of this thing so that it continues to multiply and continues to be this thing rather than like, hey, have these stable relationships and consistent relationships where you can grow together and grow in wisdom and have people who really know you for the long haul, right? Um, and then there's a bunch that like th- they feel like they should be obvious. But when you're in them, you wrestle with like whether or not it's real. For instance, if the core leadership team is turning over every you know eight to 12 months, um, that's probably an alarm bell, you know? Mars Hill had 130% staff uh, turnover in its final two years. And it's like that's probably a warning sign, 130%. That's a big deal, you know? Everybody who was here 16 years ago uh, or five years ago, they're all gone. That's probably a warning sign. Um, I think Mars is probably an extreme example in that particular thing. But, you know, it's it's the exaggerated version that speaks to the – Speaks to the core issue. What role,
2: and I think, speaking specifically in the evangelical world, yeah, what role does the desire for growth play in driving a lot of these phenomena? So I, I don't know if you read, um, maybe it's about a month ago now. Uh, Tim Alberta had oh, a yeah. piece in yeah. the Atlantic on. Uh, as he put it, the crisis in the evangelical church where he looked at two churches in the Detroit area in Michigan. um, And I think David French had described it as uh, at least the model of one of them is crazy as a growth strategy. (laughs) Uh, And but nonetheless, like, you know, why going in that direction? Right. Because there's this, this desire to grow, to get more people in the doors. Yeah. What role does growth play in driving not just the phenomenons that Alberta is talking about in that piece, but also, you know, the general crisis that we've been talking about and that you talked about in The
0: Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Maybe most of it, you know what I mean? Um, so so if we lose, you know, go like just to touch on it again, if we lose the idea that vetted, well-formed, experienced pastoral leadership is what we should be looking for from, from the pastors of our churches, then we have to say well, like, well, what is the metric? And the metric in most of these churches is, you know, the ABCs, attendance, building and cash. Um, and so, so, yeah, I think it plays a really, really significant role. I, I had a conversation with a pastor of a very large church at one point and he, you know, they probably have 20 plus thousand people coming on a, on a regular weekend. And he was – listening to the podcast and was kind of fascinated by it and was trying to sort of think through his own framework and go, well, what, what does somebody like me do? Like, like, am I supposed to tell everybody like, oh, no, go find a church of 100 people? Um, and, and I said, no, I, I don't think that's necessarily the thing. But I think you do have to examine like what do we ultimately value and do the people in these congregations, are they able to find real meaningful community somewhere in here? And I said, like, what if for a year you guys, you've got, you know, they have hundreds of staff? Like, what if for a year the only thing you counted was the number of funerals that people attended and the number of hospital visits that you made? Um, which of course they're not going to do, right? <laughs> like because because that's just that's the primary metric, and that's the way we say success and and that is the, you know, the ultimate qualification. Why was Mark Driscoll at Southeastern Seminary telling that story, saying, "Look at me! I've, I have no qualifications." He was there because his church was really, really big, and churches all over the country wanted to do what they were what they were doing because it was really, really big. Um, so that does seem to be the standard that that matters more than anything else
2: in the context of pastoral leadership. So that. we're just discussed again that example of of the anti-qualification stuff um there's a line from your podcast that stuck with me that is roughly that mark's talent was capable of taking him further than his maturity could handle um And again, this comes back to the, and get your bingo card out, the Yuval Levin (laughs) point about the purpose of institutions, that they're supposed to form us into better people. If we haven't been introduced through those institutions and formed into better people, then, yeah, you can find yourself in this disequilibrium of just your ability to do something doesn't mean that you can handle all that will come with it. it. From what you've learned from doing this podcast, and also from being, um, you know, in a church and having the experience personally that you had with 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 that imploding, what what should be happening differently with the formation of people who will be pastors, who will be at the center of these churches, to make sure that again, like as we talked about, they have that talent, and you're going to want people with that talent to communicate that charisma to be able to handle everything that is going to come along
0: with that. Man, I have I, – I could talk for a long time about this. The, the first thing that comes to mind – so there's two things that I think would be worth trying to get to briefly. One is um, I love Matthew Crawford's kind of visual image of the cultural jig, right? That, that what, what a healthy institution does is it creates this channel – in which you have to navigate to be formed and shaped into the kind of person who can do the work that that is you know needs to be done. And and what I love about the imagery is it helps us to look at an institution, um, and ask ourselves like what's the jig? Like how do you you know how do we um, how do we understand like what what what's being asked of leaders to be able to do the roles that they have? Um, I don't know. I don't have the answer in the sense of like here's what I think those need to look like, except that I think if you examine the cultural jigs right now, they they go to all these things we've talked about. Are you are you good on a platform? Are you able to entertain? And um, you know, are you able to draw a crowd? Um, are you able to keep you know keep the coffers full? The second thing is is I think the 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 way our institutions. Uh, the way our institutions center what matters is a really, really big deal. So I would say like sort of mainline churches, Catholicism, you know, Greek Orthodox, uh, Orthodox churches in general, they, they do – w- one of the advantages in those churches uh, over what evangelical communities look like is that there's, there's a value on the sacraments that decenters the person in the pulpit. Uh, I remember talking to a friend who, uh, who's, who's Roman Catholic and, and about these very issues and he said, you know, what's so interesting is that w- we have no illusions about the facts that like priests are flawed men and they might be, you know, uh, a raging alcoholic and this, that and the other and have all these like personal problems and challenges. And at the end of the day, that kind of doesn't matter at the mass because they're simply setting the table for what matters most which is the eucharist. Now obviously as a as an evangelical as a protestant and all that I have some different views about those kinds of things. But but I also believe that like ultimately like word table baptism the fellowship of the saints th- those things are the things that matter most. You know James K a. Smith has said what what evangelicals have done is they've 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 turned the worship service into a coldplay concert followed by a ted talk. And if if, if that continues to be the model, we're just going to see this repeat itself over and over again. We have, to have a, we have to have an end goal for successful ministries and for the shapes of churches that looks like something richer and more sustainable than, you know, entertaining dude and a great band and with a worship leader in skinny jeans. Let's conclude here. The thing that I
2: love about storytelling projects like yours, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, is I've known enough people who've done them that when you first have the inkling of the story that you want to tell and you set out telling it, uh, it it becomes its own journey. And you don't always expect it to go in all the directions that it ends up going. What, What was the biggest lesson you took away from telling that story that wasn't in your head in the beginning in the concept of, you know, I want to tell this story, but by the end it was like, I wasn't expecting to have learned this.
0: So when we spent more than a year interviewing people before we launched the podcast and there were a whole lot of people who said no, um, that we really wanted to talk to that were, were kind of central to the story. So we launched the podcast having not talked to any of them. Um, and then we got to episode three and episode three is looking specifically at the way Driscoll was able to connect with young men in the church, and and we 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 spoke about it very positively. Um, you know, a lot of the the Mars Hill criticism, both during the life of the church and after, was you know, a, used this language of toxic masculinity. Um, because Driscoll, I mean, very clearly did, did said some dumb things and their approach to understanding like the role of women and uh, the way marriage is supposed to work, very problematic. But nonetheless, young men came to these churches and they had a vision like your life has a purpose. You're called to great things. You're capable of doing them. Be, be bold. Be brave. Go out. So they were inspired and they, and they did these things. They got – you know they worked hard. They, they got married. They had kids um, and they found a ton of meaning in that. And so we told the story that way in, in that episode. And all of a sudden when that episode aired, all these people who said no started calling and saying, OK, we're ready to talk. And it really changed the direction of the whole podcast. And that experience, you know, that experience revealed to me that what was, what was hindering those people from telling their story was they wanted to make sure that we told what mattered about the church um, because the 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 emotion around what was good about the church remains incredibly powerful, even to the people who were hurt the most. And so, it, you know, I had a I, I would say I had some inkling about the fact that the the richness of community was a big deal and a big part of the Marcel story. Um, I think the revelation of that experience was like, no, that was the thing. That was the thing that kept it going for so, far, for so long to where at the end, you know, a lot of these people were like, yeah, we, we had, you know, very little love for Mark at the end, but he was just the guy on the screen. Like the church for us was our community group and these people who would, you know, who shared life with us. And so I think that gets lost in, in these stories. You're right. And if you listen to the story as you tell it, the the
2: manifestation of what we would call toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. is clearly there as well. But as you pointed out, there was this effort to reach young men. With a message, that message that you said that is, you know, your life can have purpose, and we see this uh, phenomenon manifesting itself in other places as well. I think it has a lot to do with the Jordan Peterson phenomenon For as sure. well. That's like, you know, Jordan Peterson's books are very simple, but they are the kinds of things that you know everybody really needs to be told. Like the make your bed is right. <laughs> a very simple thing, but yeah, people should be told that. So you have on one hand this. Crisis in toxic masculinity that I think you can see examples of. But you also have a inverse problem where you have a lot of men who don't know what their role is in this world, in their community, and are looking for help along those lines. Is How do we... How do we address that crisis without it bleeding over into overcompensation and becoming the kind of toxic stuff that we saw with Mark, particularly, as you mentioned, with uh, the teaching on marriage, on sexuality? Um, How do we better address that problem?
0: I don't pretend to have the answer on this one. I think the Peterson phenomenon is fascinating. I think you could say the same thing about the Rogan thing. I think there's a reason – You know, and there's a there's a dozen or so of these examples. Ryan Holiday and what he's doing with Stoicism. Um, This stuff resonates because uh, because young men are 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 painted the villain, um, and sort of young aggressive masculine energy is painted the villain. The the one thing that I have thought a lot about, and I don't know. I don't know how you do this, right? When you, when, you, when you back up 100 years or 150 years in Western culture and you look at, you look at the language around masculinity, you still see a lot of that. You, you see a lot of what you're hearing in Peterson and, and others that sort of calls men to, to boldness and bravery and all of that. What you also see there that, you, that I don't think you see right now. Is this balancing factor that understands that there comes a point in life, like a pivot point, where you turn from that that young, uh, you know, plow the ground, you know, you know, go out in the woods and kill a bear and take a wife and start a family. You, there's a pivot point that turns from that into a culture of wisdom where you're somebody who's got your scars you've got your gray hair you've seen some things and you're able to be a source of wisdom and stability you're the kind of person that an institution can trust to put in charge because you've lost some of your grandiosity from some of the some of the failures and some of the wounds um, I think similarly like in the you know in the stories of these or in the uh, in the message of a lot of these, these people who are resonating with young men, you know, one of the challenges for them is one of the challenges for the church. I don't know that they deal with the tragic aspects of life particularly well. I, one guy who I think does, who utterly fascinates me is Jocko Willink former Navy SEAL, who's done all this interesting leadership development stuff and has an extremely successful podcast and platform. I mean, this guy fought in the Battle of Ramadi, like led the Battle of Ramadi with SEAL Team uh, 3 and, you know, has a very clear sense that life is hard and tragic and, and, and difficult. So I think if if there was a way to bring out that understanding of like the meaning of suffering, the goodness of suffering, and the the humility and 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 the sort of the tenderness and wisdom that should come on the other side of that stuff. It could be a real it could be a real gift to our culture.
2: Mike Cosper, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Jaja.